Welcome to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Hosted by Beth Bershock with expert advice from Jim Lang, Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney and retirement and estate planning expert. Jim is also the author of Retire Secure, Pay Taxes Later. To find out more about his book, his practice, Lang Financial Group, and how to secure Jim as a speaker for your next event, visit his website at retiresecure.com. Now, get ready to talk smart money. We are talking smart money. Thank you for joining us this evening. I'm Beth Bershock, Jim Lang, CPA, attorney, author of two best-selling books, uh, edition one and edition two of Retire Secure, Pay Taxes Later. We also have a guest with us for the first section of the show tonight. Before we get rolling here, I do want to give the studio line, which is 412-333-9385. Anytime you have a question, you can check in tonight, 412-333-9385. Let me introduce the guest and do a... A quick synopsis of how he ended up on the show tonight. Tom Crowley, who is a senior wealth planner and VP at PNC Wealth Management. First of all, thank you so much for joining us at the last minute tonight, Tom. It's nice to have you here. And how this got started was a couple of weeks ago we were planning the show and we decided that we would talk about trusts. A lot of misconception, uh, misconceptions about trusts, and so we thought, great, Jim can set the record straight. And then Jim caught an article in the Post-Gazette on Friday, May 29th, that was about family finances. It was called Family Finances Equal Complex Puzzle. Divorce, remarriage can make estate planning especially challenging. And the scenario that was set up in the article, this is... This was the setup. After 15 years in their second marriage, the husband was getting ready to retire. He had a million dollars in his IRA. And the wife, who had been a stay-at-home mom, she she was shocked to learn that she had no ownership rights to the account. And one of the plans that was brought forth was something called a Q-tip trust. And Jim thought, doesn't like the idea because of tax issues. And so we, we invited Tom on to discuss the issue tonight. First of all, I need you to to clarify what a Q-tip is, because that's not a term that's just on the tip of everybody's tongue. So, Tom, do you want to explain what that is? Sure. Um, a Q-tip trust is a qualified terminal interest property trust, and that definition actually isn't very helpful to describe what it is, but it's really a creature of the tax code, and it, it, it uh, refers specifically to the estate tax area. Um, the rules have been for years and years, uh, Uncle Sam has always said, if a spouse leaves all of their assets outright to the surviving spouse at death, then they'll postpone tax. No tax due. It's called the marital deduction, and everybody generally wants that to happen. A tax, you know, uh, postponed is a tax saved. But uh, as with anything, there's exceptions to all kinds of rules. And over time, um, uh, people said, "Well, I don't really want to leave it outright to my spouse, but I want my spouse to benefit." Maybe it was a second marriage situation. So over time, uh, the the IRS recognized the fact that. There should be some exception to that rule, and that's why that's how this trust came about. Qualified, it qualified for the marital deduction. It wouldn't have otherwise done so, but because people wanted to, their spouse to enjoy um, uh, income or enjoy the asset, but not actually inherit it outright, but they ultimately wanted to control it, so they had some changes. And if I was going to simplify things for our listener, I, I would just say, at the death of the IRA owner, the money will go into a trust. The income from the trust will go to his wife. When his wife dies, the money will go to some combination of surviving children. Okay, now Jim doesn't like Q-tip as a beneficiary of an IRA for tax issues, and can you explain what would be happening there? 
Well, first, let me tell you that this isn't something that I thought of recently. In fact, back in 2006 and again in 2009, when I wrote a chapter about um, trusts and Q-tips as beneficiaries of, of retirement plans, and one of the um, benefits of writing a book is you're allowed to quote yourself. <laughs> so, oh, perfect. So, so I am going to quote myself. I hate Q-tips <laughs> as beneficiaries of IRAs and retirement plans. Okay, that's strong. That is strong wording. And, and, and honestly, explain what happens wi- with the tax issues there. What happens with the tax issues, it's, I consider it a tax travesty because the whole idea of having IRAs and retirement plans, if possible, is to put off or postpone paying income taxes. We sometimes call it the stretch IRA, and the idea is, unless there's an absolute need for the money now, and there's no other money available, that we, tr- we continue to get what's called a stretch IRA, which is putting the, the required distributions off as far as we can. If you leave money to a Q-tip trust, right the year after the IRA owner dies, the surviving spouse must start taking distributions from that, that, that trust. And then after the surviving spouse dies, the children must, must take distributions out of the IRA at a much faster rate than if we did the, the alternative, which we can get into. The alternative, by the way, is forget this trust business, <laughs> just to leave a certain amount to the surviving spouse and a certain amount to the kids. Okay, we can go through that in, in just a minute. But that's, you're, you're saying that's what happens when a Q-tip trust is the beneficiary of your IRA. These are the tax issues that you're going to be facing. Right, and we'll, we'll quantify those in a, in a few minutes. Okay, but, but Tom, and again, Tom is from PNC Wealth Management, Tom Crowley joining us this evening. Tom, are, are you on the same page with the tax issues? I am, and I, I, I uh, um, because I didn't write the book, I can't, <laughs> you can't, I quote, I can't quote myself. Uh, <laughs> but I, I agree with Jim to the extent um, that that it is that it is purely a tax issue. Um, couldn't agree more. Um, and and so in 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 in, in my business, uh, when we sit down and we talk with clients, um, we're also talking about um, issues beyond the tax issue. And and in this case, and spe- specifically with a Q-tip trust, in, another issue is control. And so with all things, when you want maybe you want more control, you may give up some tax benefits. And Jim's absolutely right; you may give up substantial tax benefits. So you always want to think about. Um, what you're giving up and try to quantify that in some way. And Jim does a great job with doing that and, and, and running calculations to see you know, what is it that you're, what is it that you're, you, how, how, how do you benefit from the stretch, from that slowing down of, uh, of um, distributions coming out of IRAs? Because the Q-tip kind of throws that on its, on its head, but it's a control, more of a control issue than it is a tax issue. So are you saying that in some instances you would, you would use it just for control? Correct. Okay, and Jim, would, do, would you agree? I would never use it, even for control, as beneficiary of an IRA. It's one thing to say, yeah, control's nice, and sometimes control is more important than the tax issues. Before I want to go there, though, I think we ought to quantify the tax issues. Now, I'm the, the fir- first person to quantify the tax detriments of naming a Q-tip as the beneficiary of an IRA. 
the first person that I know that who was who has a wonderful reputation in the area. She's a just a terrific writer. Her name's Natalie Schultz. Um, she actually quantified the difference between naming a one point eight million dollar IRA to a Q-tip versus doing what I'm recommending, which is naming a certain percentage, and in her case, two thirds or one point two million dollars directly to the surviving spouse without a trust and the other $600,000 directly to children without a trust. She ran numbers and came to the conclusion that over time, the family would be better off by $4.3 million. And how much time are we talking? Well, I, I think that's over 30 years. Now, to be fair, I actually had Steve Komen, who was just a wonderful number runner in our office, go through her calculations, and he, he recreated her calculations, but he said, you know, some of her assumptions were were not really right on point for today's tax law, and he wanted to be much more conservative. And when he ran the calculations, um, and he accounted for the difference in the, in the value of the IRA, he came to the conclusion that the IRA owner's family, which is a combination of the surviving spouse and the remaining children, that there would be a $750,000 advantage to this them. This was Steve. Right, this is and, Steve's analysis. And I have analysis. to tell you, Steve is, Steve is really nitpicky when he does these calculations, when he does these projections. So that's the calculation that the, he came up with. Right, that's, that's fantastically conservative. Now, he even took it a step further. He said, now, to be fair... On, by the way, that, that 756000 is on a million, all right? Now, he said, to be fair, that is over time. And if you want to translate that into today's dollars, you have to factor in inflation. And then the number he came up with was, was still over $300,000. Now, if you're talking about a million dollars in an IRA, to give up $300,000 in value... To me, I I have a very hard time doing that. I would say even under the best of circumstances. But if we get back to what Tom was saying, which is an issue of control, what if you have a client and that is really what concerns them more? All right. Is it, Tom, is it fair to say that the control issue, what a client really wants to do in that situation? So picture a second a second marriage, typically children from a first marriage, and you want to be fair to your spouse. You want to be fair to your kids from the first marriage. And normally, with, the, with a Q-tip trust, what you're saying is the spouse can get the income, and then when the spouse dies, it goes to the kids, all right? And that way, you do have, that way the person who is dying or, or preparing, preparing their will or their trust or the beneficiary of their IRA has, quote, control of that. I would maintain if you're giving up, in the best circumstances, $300,000 in tax savings, that there are much better alternatives. I, I, I do want to give um, Tom a chance to talk about control a little bit, and then I'd like to sure. talk about, I will also be happy to talk about some of the non-tax reasons why I don't like Q-tips as beneficiaries of IRAs. Okay, let's let Tom address the control issue. Sure. Well, I, I, I think, I think the, the, uh, the answer to the control issue is that you present findings like you have, uh, Jim, to your client, and talk to them about, how that might affect their decision on control. Some clients will say, that's great, that's very helpful, and now I understand why um, 
I would rather use the tax advantage than the control. But some clients may say, you know what, I want to make sure that my surviving spouse is taken care of for the rest of her life. If I divide now and give her the IRA, give her part of an IRA, and, and the rest of the IRA goes to my children, I've made a decision that we can never turn back from, and whatever she gets, she's got, and she's free to do with it what she pleases. Maybe she, maybe she isn't uh, um, comfortable managing money. Maybe There can be lots of reasons, but that's what's great about uh, the business that we're in. We, if we do a good job with our clients, we have the in-depth discussion that you have on the, on the, uh, the IRA distributions and the taxes, and I also have the same kind of discussions with clients on, on, the, uh, on their intentions and what they want to do, and, and we both have both sides of those discussions. And typically, what in, in in this example in the article, this is a situation where you have a second wife, maybe even a third wife. You have stepchildren. You have children from your first marriage, and you're trying to deal with the whole ball of yeah, wax. Yeah, you've got and a lot of obligations. You have a lot of obligations. And, and do you ever run into a situation? I'm imagining where nobody can agree on anything. We do, we do, and 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 um, you know we. But I, I'll say this, and Jim would agree with this as well. We rarely run into this exact scenario where the only asset is an IRA. The only issue is the Q-tip. There is no other way to, to say skin the cat. There's no other way to deal with the issue. Um, but 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 we do. We run into situations where a client simply sees both sides and can't decide on either, and it's it's right. a difficult situation to be in. And the family is arguing, probably. And the family's the family. taking positions sometimes. Right. And, sure. Um, and. Uh, but clients work that they work through that. If you if you continue the discussion with them, they they generally work through that and make a decision that's best for them. And Jim, other non-tax issues that that you see as a problem? Well, one issue, and this is almost a philosophical issue. And in general, I do like explaining the differences and the alternatives and the advantages and disadvantages to a client, and ultimately having the client decide. In reality. This might sound a little bit arrogant, but sometimes I just know better than the client what is best for the client. So rather than give them an option that, in my opinion, makes no sense, like this one where we give up 30% of the value um, for the control benefit, I might even mention it, and I would just really dismiss it. But let's go back to the – but let's even assume – that somebody was rational, understood the 30% or $300,000 issue, and was even willing to live with that. I have some non-tax issues with the Q-tip trust. A lot of times what will happen is the surviving children won't get so the, these additional money for the attorneys to draft the thing, the additional the money. To get a, a good understanding of what the client wants to do. Um, well, estate planning issues are difficult issues. Tom has been a very good guy and, and is is here defending um, or de, or discussing, but partially defending what I think is a is a tough stance. So I'm going to be the bad guy here and throw out one other alternative. And this is what people might may or may not want to hear, but this is this is often the answer to the issue, and that is get some life insurance. If if we end up with getting a life insurance policy, typically owned and made payable to children of a prior marriage. We save estate taxes, we save income taxes, and we give a chunk of money to the children at the time of dad's death without having to wait for mom to die, without having to split up the IRA, without having to 
enter some of the complications that we've done. And does that something that makes sense to you, Tom? Something we talk to our clients about, so it's not, yeah, it's, it's, it, uh, it does make sense. You know, IRAs are incredibly efficient during your lifetime. They are incredibly tax inefficient at death. Life insurance is, is, a, is a very, very good substitute to bring in when someone dies because it doesn't it doesn't carry all that baggage along with it but but that's another discussion that you know you need to have with a client there but it, can, are, it can be a solution and there are a lot of there are a lot of complex issues especially if you're involving kids from a couple of different marriages a second wife a third wife so a, a lot of things to deal with and i do want to thank tom for his time because we we said he would be doing the first oh tom tom jim has one more thing he wants to get in now i well, want <laughs> i want you to recognize i've gone 20 minutes without re- talking about Roth IRA conversions. But another problem with doing the Q-tip trust as the beneficiary of the IRA is that we kill the opportunity to do a Roth IRA conversion oh, there you have it. For, which, for either the spouse or the children I'm of the sh- first marriage. I have no doubt that's one of the reasons you really don't like it, right? <laughs> because it's all about the Roth. Hey, Tom, thank you so much for taking your time today. We really appreciate it. Tom Crowley, Senior Wealth Planner and VP at PNC Wealth management who joined us at the very last minute today. I really appreciate you coming in. We are going to take a quick break. It is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQVAM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQVAM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Talking smart money, I'm Beth Bershock with Jim Lang. And the studio line, if you have a question tonight, is 412-333-9385. Just a second ago, we mentioned uh, another workshop coming up that we have. And I want to give the phone number again because... We already have half of the half of the room filled. So if you would like to attend this, it's coming up on June 20th, Crown Plaza South, which is right across from South Hills Village. We have two sessions. One is going to be from 9.30 to 11.30 in the morning, and then we have 1 to 3 in the afternoon. And the, the phone number, RSVPs, we already have quite a few. This is absolutely going to fill up. So call one 800 748 one five seven one. You can call it tonight. This line answers twenty four hours. One eight hundred seven four eight one five seven one. The workshop is called Two New Tax Laws Create Shocking Opportunities for Wealth Preservation. You're going to find a lot of information about Roth IRAs, Roth IRA conversions, and a tax law change coming up in two thousand ten. So please join us for that. Now we are going to get back to trust. And Jim, this is an area I think that really confuses a lot of people and. I think there are a lot of misconceptions about trusts in general. You hear one person say one thing, another person say another thing. Let's start with revocable living trust, revocable trust, living trust. Explain exactly what the purpose of that trust is first. The ultimate benefit of a revocable trust, though there are side benefits, is that the revocable trust avoids probate. It becomes a will substitute. So let's say you have a normal situation where Joe Joe wants to leave money and, and now we're going outside the IRA, which is an important point, by the way. The beneficiary designation of the IRA controls who gets the IRA 
at death, not the will or the revocable trust. But let's say that Joe wants to leave some money to his family members, whether it be his wife or his children or his aunt or uncles or a charity or, or whomever. In the old days, Joe would draft a will. He would go to an attorney and the attorney would draft a will. And at Joe's death, money would go through a process called probate, which, and, and that's still the process, and that is a court-supervised process to make sure that um, everybody is getting what they were supposed to get, to make sure that attorneys are not overcharging, and um, to make sure that um, the terms of the trust, which do become a matter of, I'm sorry, the terms of the will, which becomes a matter of public record, are carried out. And that's what a lot of people, probably the vast majority of the people do. And then there has been a, an outcry that says, boy, you know, it is expensive to go through probate. First, there's a lot of fees that the court charges. And then some, some attorneys are charging a percentage of the, of the estate, of the, what's known as the probate estate, as their fee. Um, unfortunately, we don't do that because... Unfortunately, I say that because we'd make a lot more money if we did. <laughs> we, we, I, I, have, I happen to think it's ethical to charge an, a fair hourly rate for state administration. But there are a lot of people who are interested in, um, in saving money on fees. Uh, before, uh, we do have to go to the phone for one quick second here because we have a phone call coming in. This is from Baltimore. Checking in from Baltimore, Maryland. We have Charles on the line. Charles? Mm -hmm. uh, hi, how are you? Yes, hi. Hi, you have a question for Jim tonight? Yes, I do. Okay, what's your question? Um, he talks about uh, the uh, value of converting um, a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. Um, but at the same time, he talks about paying taxes later. Um, two questions. One, why would I want to pay taxes now uh, by doing a conversion? And two, if I'm going to live off of the money in my IRA, I've seen calculations that show that there's really no difference uh, between converting now and paying taxes now or keeping the money in a traditional IRA and paying taxes later. In the end, the net uh, amount of wealth that you create is the same. Well, I would question those calculations, first of all. Um, I have written peer-reviewed analysis measured in purchasing power that will show if you make a $100,000 Roth IRA conversion that you yourself, during your lifetime, will be $40,000 better off. If you then die and leave it to your kids, they might be $700,000 better off or even more. If you leave it to your grandkids, even more. So I'm not sure which calculations that, that you have seen. Mine, mine happen to be peer-reviewed by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. Um, the reason ultimately, though, even if you're going to try to get away from the, the math, and by the way, I'd be happy to have a math discussion with, with anybody because my my analysis is just i believe um so rock solid but here's the way i would think of it conceptually with a roth ira conversion you are paying income taxes up front which is kind of like paying taxes on the seed then the seed is planted the money's invested hopefully it will grow over time unlike the last 10 years but hopefully it <laughs> will grow over time and you get all that growth income tax-free. So what you're doing allegorically is you're paying income taxes on the seed and you're reaping the harvest tax-free. And I'm not sure what numbers or where you're quoting, but I could, I could show you the analysis that I do that you will be significantly better off. Now, will that apply to everybody? No. Will that 
um, mean that you should convert your entire IRA in one year? No. But for most people who have the money to pay the tax on the conversion from outside of their IRA, and particularly if that's not going to throw them into a higher income tax bracket, I can show you mathematically how you'll be better off measured in purchasing power. Gosh, maybe I think you may have just hit the nail on the head. Maybe that's what I haven't understood. Are you talking about paying those taxes with money from the IRA, or are you talking about monies that are separate uh, from that IRA uh, uh, withdrawal that you're converting? I am talking about money um, th that you have to pay the tax from outside the IRA. Oh. If, if you're saying gee, the only money I have is my IRA, should I make a Roth IRA conversion? I would be very hesitant to make a Roth IRA conversion if you have to go to the IRA to pay the taxes on the Roth IRA conversion. In that case, I would agree with you that mathematically, theoretically, depending on your assumptions, you might end up in a break-even situation. And since there isn't any great benefit I would probably be, I'd rather err on the side of being conservative and not do it. I only want to do a Roth IRA conversion when I can show many thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of dollars of value to the, to the client. I think, you, I think um, you've explained something that a lot of us are confused about because it, it seems that that calculation you're referring to doesn't take into account the lost opportunity cost of using other monies to pay the taxes. Well, my, mine, mine does take into account into account the lost opportunity, but it's the lost opportunity of the money that you would have outside of the IRA mm -hmm. that I'm, t I'm taking into consideration. Very good. Thank you very much, sir. You know what? It sounds like Charles needs to check out Retire Secure Pay Taxes later. Well, we, 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 we do have a, a whole chapter on that. And, With, um, and Jim's calculations are in graph form graphs and charts in the book and it really helps to take a look at that and you, you see it in black and white and you can see exactly where he's going with those calculations i will do that okay thank you so much charles and, and the other thing is you can do what that the guy from washington dc did which is he was so interested in knowing this he actually came to our seminar there you go charles mark this date down june 20th <laughs> pittsburgh okay you can drive up, drive up from Baltimore. You see, Jim, we went 25 minutes without talking about Roth IRAs, and that was it. That's all we could get. Well. We, we had a question, and that's fine. If you have a question, 412-333-9385, 412-333-9385. Let's get back to the trust, because this was the whole idea behind living trust. You're saying maybe not the entire idea, but one thing it does do is it avoids probate upon death. Right, which, which simplifies the process for the heirs. It normally reduces the amount of time it takes to distribute the assets. It does reduce attorney fees, even ethical attorney fees like us who charge on an hourly basis. It takes us less time to do a state administration for a revocable trust than a will. The, the other benefit is it has benefits while the client is alive. So let's say for discussion's sake that... that um, that you're getting a little, little bit older and that you might become incompetent. If you have all your money and all your property already transferred to a trust, and, and by the way, the terms of this trust is basically I can do whatever I want with the money. I can invest it. I could spend it. I could burn it. The trust more or less allows you while you are alive, or sometimes we do joint trust for husbands and wives, sometimes separate. But in either case, the trust basically says 
I can do whatever I want while I'm alive, and then at my death, then this is what's going to happen. And then you put in all the provisions. One of the benefits of a revocable trust is you. It, we typically name the the uh, the client, the trustee, the initial trustee, but then we will name a subsequent trustee. So um, even today, somebody was in my office, and um, it was a child of a of an older gentleman, and the child, as the trustee, was able to help their their older um, parent who who either couldn't or didn't want to deal with with some of the paperwork. So that's an, an extra added benefit of this particular type of uh, trust. Of this trust. Now, now one thing that's really important is if you're going to go to the trouble of creating this trust, and this is where a lot of attorneys and clients have a disconnect. Typically, it is going to cost a, some money to create this trust. If you're going to go to the time and trouble of creating it, I would say go to the time and trouble of actually making it effective, which means that you actually have to transfer your assets into it. So let's say for discussion's sake that you have an investment account, wherever it might happen to be, and right now it's in your name, and you create one of these trusts. If you want to avoid probate, then you need to take that investment and retitle it in the name of the trust. So you're saying if you had the trust and you never transferred your assets, then you still have to go through probate. That's right. It's, it, it would be controlled by the will. Now, typically in that situation, you get what's called a pour-over will, which more or less says, I leave everything to the trust. But now you have a probate situation because that will m then must be probated. So you've kind of lost some of the benefit of creating a trust in the first place. What do you think is going on there? Is that an oversight, or is it just that somebody doesn't want to transfer all of the assets? Well, in, I, I hate to knock fellow professionals, but sometimes I think that um, attorneys and advisors are a little bit sloppy about whose name accounts are on and taking care of the details. I, I know personally my own philosophy is... I never fear, and this almost might sound arrogant, I never fear making a conceptual mistake. I fear making a mechanical mistake. So I actually like to hold the client's hand through the process, sometimes even doing the, doing the work myself in terms of, of um, maybe filling out beneficiary forms or making sure that the asset is transferred. But just to have a real quick note to the client, oh, by the way, you, you might want to transfer everything to the trust, I don't think is sufficient. I think the clients that do better if they are kind of guided through the process of avoiding probate, and then, then you get what you want, which is um, avoiding the, the cost and aggravation and time of probate, and you have control within the family. Is there any benefit at all if you set this trust up but then you didn't transfer the assets? Is there is there are you left with any benefit to having one of these trusts? Well, if you don't transfer any assets to the trust, then really there there really isn't any benefit. So you went to all of that trouble for nothing. Right. What is what is typically let's say the halfway solution is when some of the assets are tr transferred and some aren't. What is the purpose there? Well, then, then you really don't get much benefit. So I, so I sometimes counsel clients when we're when we're deciding on what kind of um, estate plan we should do. Do we want to go all in effect will and beneficiary designation, which is fine, 
or do we want to transfer all the assets that can and should be transferred to the trust to the trust but I don't like the middle ground I like to kind of go one way or, or the other and that's what I u- usually when I talk with clients if clients are more cost conscious the trust takes additional time to both draft and more importantly to transfer the assets into so for a very cost conscious client and particularly somebody who doesn't have a large probate estate we might do traditional wills for an older client that has a lot of money um, outside of the IRA then I might lean a little bit towards um, doing avoiding probate and doing a revocable trust. And that is just one type of trust. There are many. We're going to be talking about some more of those coming up next. A quick break first. It is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQV AM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQV AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Thank you for joining us this evening. I'm Beth Burshock along with Jim Lang. We are talking about trust this evening. Jim has been practicing in Squirrel Hill for, what is it now, Jim, 30 years? 30 years. Wow. We do. We did get a question off the air for the office phone number, so I wanted to share that with you. It's 412-521-2732. We're going through a lot of strategic information tonight, so if you do want to check in with the office, 412 412- Five two one two seven three two. We're actually really easy to get to. People ask me that all of the time. It's literally right off the Squirrel Hill exit. If you're on the Parkway, you come off of the exit, you go up one block. It's right on the corner there of Murray and Phillips. Right, it's Murray and Phillips. So four one two five two one two seven three two. If you would like to check in with the office. Now we were just talking a few minutes ago about living trust. One thing that is a big, big concern for parents. And that is taking care of minor beneficiaries. So that, that's a whole different issue, trust for minors. And I'm sure we see this all the time, but what is the main concern with setting up trust for minors? The main concern for tr- setting up trust for minors is to make sure that Junior doesn't blow dad's inheritance well, that's a- <laughs> on sex, drugs, and rock and roll when he's 21 years old. Well, that's a concern. <laughs> that really is a concern because some people could, you know, you're young, you get a big old lump sum, you're out on a big party until the money runs out. I, I have seen in my own life um, situations where um, people got too much money too early and it literally devastated them. Um, well, you you have, I mean, honestly, you have no perspective at a really young age. You just think this money is going to keep on coming. And when it runs out, that's it. The, the, the other thing is sometimes it will actually, not only would you run out of money, but it might change your motivation substantially. I know um, I have a personal situation where I kind of, um, growing up in high school, was with a group of of let's call it high achievers, you know, we we ended up being doctors and lawyers. Well, all of us didn't turn out too well. Um, <laughs> doctors and lawyers and engineers and, and people who, who, who went to um, at least undergraduate, usually multiple degrees, and, and are doing relatively well professionally. But w- one of us, um, their parents died when they were still young, and they um, never went back to college. And oh, they got the money while they were in, in college. And they never 
they never finished what, and they're on a, let's call it a, a radically um, different career path. I'm not saying it's better or worse, but I guess I'm inferring it's a little bit worse. I think that it, it has, it's more than just running out of money. I think when you reduce the motivation to work and go to school and to make something of yourself, that you're not just changing somebody's finances, you're actually changing their lives. You know, and the thing is that I am sure a lot of parents, when they set that up, think they are doing their kids a favor. Well, I think so, and and, and far too often I see these trusts, um, even for even for minor beneficiaries, and it says, well, you know, um, if if I die and I leave my money to children, and by the way, I would say in my in my circumstance. Um, just based on the age of my average client, it's it's more often a discussion of the grandchildren than the children. But it might say something like um, health, maintenance, support, education, postgraduate education, down payment for a home, seed money for a business, and if you're a real sport, one summer in Europe. But then, if you say, then when the child is 21 years old, they get the entire amount, in most cases... I would say that that's just too early. Do you also think that the, you talked about motivation a moment ago, do you think that when the child knows that, when they, they know that when they turn 21 they're going to get this whole big lump of money, it changes their motivation a lot earlier? I think it does. And the other thing is, and I'm not exactly sure if, if I can even say this with compliance, I don't even like to tell kids that they have money in a trust fund. But surely or, they have to know. Um Maybe not. Maybe not. I have a lot of I have a lot of clients who are putting away money for their children and grandchildren, and the children and grandchildren don't know about it. And I kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a sneak attack later. Hey, guess what? Well, what what is the solution to that then? The solution to that would be to have any money that is geared towards a minor beneficiary or even somebody who will obviously make it past twenty one to have a type of trust where you don't distribute everything at 21, and again, health, maintenance, support, postgraduate education, etc. Um, but then rather than terminating the trust to 21 and saying, here, you can have it all, you might go till age 25, and at which case you don't give it all to them, you give them maybe a third, then maybe a third of 30, then maybe a third of 35. And I know that these are somewhat arbitrary ages, and sometimes you can adjust that if the child is old enough that you have a sense of whether they would be responsible or not. But I would rather protect the child from themselves and maintain the motivation and make sure that money's there for the right purposes. Have you ever seen one or have you ever put one together that is so extremely strict? And it might say something like they can pay for their college education that's it. No more until they're 25 or 30. I, I've seen some pretty strict ones, um, and I've seen some ones where they don't get anything till 60. Are you serious? Uh, 60? Other, other, yeah, eight, 60. <laughs> 60. <laughs> they're um, virtually retired by then. Right, and I, obviously I'm not going to name the client's <laughs> name, but I'm thinking about him right now. Very smart guy. Now, would you call somebody like that a control freak? I don't know, but um, I have seen what I think is too much. Now, the other thing is... There are a lot of attorneys drafting IRA trusts that rather <laughs> excuse me um, that that rather than giving even adult minors um, or I'm sorry adult beneficiaries the ability of um, 
taking money whenever they want. They limit the amount to the required minimum distribution of the inherited IRA or even of the inherited, here's that word again, Roth IRA. I'm not so sure that I want to do that for people who are old enough and mature enough to handle the money. I'm not sure that it, it makes a lot of sense to um, put gobs of money in trust when there isn't really an appropriate need for it. But if I had to err, I think I would rather err on kids not given the chance to blow the money and to lose their motivation ra rather than giving it to them too early. And as a parent, would you want to set this up really upon the birth of your child? Yes, yes. You, you, you really want to do that. Um, of course, the big issue for young couples, interestingly enough, is the most important thing for young couples is actually not the terms of the trust, although that certainly is. But for younger couples, the issue is actually guardianship provisions. Who is going to take care of the child um, if something should happen to both parents? Let's say you drafted one of these trusts for minors on the birth of a first child. Would you make it broad enough to include future children, or would you have to keep adjusting that? Um, no. I, I, it's only fair to say of all the, all the kids that are living at my death, they get, and then whatever it is, in trust, and you can, there's some variations. You can divide the money into the number of children left, and everybody gets an equal share. You can say, well, there's going to be one trust, and, and the trustee is going to decide based on the needs of the children, which might not be the same, who gets what. So there's variations, but in all cases, it is, appropriately, it is appropriate to assume that there is at least a possibility of additional children, and nobody wants to come in and and change and say, guess what? I just got. I had a second child or another grandchild. Now I need to change my will again. Right, or they accidentally just don't do it, and then somebody's left out. And I want to give the office number two again. If you have a question and you want to address this later at the office, it's four one two five two one two seven three two in Squirrel Hill. Jim, something along the lines of trust for minors is what we call spendthrift trust. And this is sort of a similar situation in as much as you are trying to take care of somebody but protect them from themselves at the same time. Well, this is becoming, seems more and more popular. It seems that we're having more and more irresponsible adults adults who would not be appropriate with mon inherited money. And it's a real problem, and that's another situation where I would rather err on creating a trust, even if it puts some restrictions on the child after mom or dad dies, so the money is held in a trust, rather than risking the child blowing the money. So let's say for discussion's sake that, that, that your child or grandchild, but um, in either case, let's even just assume a child, and maybe the child's 40 or even 50 years old, but has always been irresponsible with money. They get money, boom, they spend it the minute they get it to the point that you have to bail them out time and time again. And if they had a lot of money, some people are actually very generous. I've seen clients um, leave money to their children. Their children make massive charitable contributions, way more than they could afford. Um, or sometimes it's, you know, again, things that the parent might not think is appropriate, like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But in, in either case, if you have that kind of situation, I would do what we often call a spendthrift trust, which will protect the child from themselves because no matter what you think of your kids, and even if you think your kids don't have the appropriate spending discipline and uh, mindset that you do, 
you love your kids and you don't want to see them under a bridge when they're 70. Well, that's right. So it's a fine line. You don't want to see them under a bridge, but you, you don't want them to blow through all of the money. So how, how do you walk that line? Well, I think that a, a lot of times clients have an idea of whether their children will be responsible or not. I would rather err on putting the trust in. By the way, if the situation changes, let's say the child you know matures and mom and dad now think that it would be okay to leave the adult child money directly, it's easy enough to make a, a, a quick addendum or a quick um, codicil to the will or the revocable trust that says, well, the money that was going to go in that, we call it a spendthrift trust, can go to the child outright. But I don't want to see the child under the bridge, so I would rather err on that. By the way, a close a close relative of that is when you don't trust the child's choice of spouse. Ooh, that's touchy. Right. Then, then we want... We, uh, and this is a true story. I actually had a, usually when clients come in, they say, oh, the first thing I want to do is take care of my spouse if they're married. I, this is, this, somebody came in, he came, and the first thing out of his mouth is, I don't want my no good son of a you-know-what son-in-law to get one red cent of my money. Well, there may be good reason for that. I'm just pointing out it, it could be a situation where he knows that he would get a hold of the money and blow it all, and he wants to make sure his, his daughter is taken care of. So, so we actually um, did a trust for we, we we call it the my my no good son in law doesn't get one red cent of my money. <laughs> That's trust. the official name of the trust. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it more or less is, but but it, it's it's kind of comparable and, and, and ha- is is related to a spendthrift trust. Now, if you have two children, one extremely responsible, great with money, and the other somebody that you know is going to blow through the money, you need two different trusts. Well. Or the other possibility is, let's assume that they're both in their 40s or, or they're a little bit older. The tough thing is parents typically want to treat children equally, and what might be appropriate is to leave the responsible one the money outright and then leave the irresponsible one's money in a trust. And the irresponsible one won't like it at the time. Well, I was going to say, that's a complex issue. When they, when they find out after the death of their parents that that's what happened. Well, I'll tell you what's even worse if you want to make it miserable and try to, try to like really uh, burrow in on what's the, the real pain in the situation. Who are you going to name as the trustee? That's right? tricky. Now, now the, the gentleman from PNC would certainly say, name us, name us. I'm a little bit leery of giving up control and I'm a little bit leery of some of the fees that that some of the institutions charge but um, a lot of times people end up with a choice of maybe there's a relative that can do it maybe you name you know um, one of the banks or one of the trust companies seems like if you named a relative that relative would be caught between a rock and a hard place they're the ones that have to execute it and and, and if this thing is going to last for the for a, a 40-year-old's life, it, it can't be an old relative. Right. So what we often end up with is naming the responsible sibling. Oh, and that's really tricky. R- right, right. Now, if the banker were here now, <laughs> he, he would be having oh, a conniption fit. I can see some family arguments over Thanksgiving dinner over that one. Well, see, that's, see, that's the fear is that, is that you're going to break up the family because, 
you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner might just not be the same if the two brothers are, are fighting about one wants a new Mercedes and the and the appropriate responsible trustee is saying, no, I think that, you know, I'd rather use that money as a down payment for a home or, sure, or, or I can for see, rent. Sure, I can see some problems. So, so that's sometimes one of the big problems is who's going to be the trustee of that trust. But I will tell you in practice, even though there's a lot of good reasons not to name the other one of these the um, siblings, that's who often ends up being the trustee. When somebody is named a trustee, they have to agree to it, obviously, first. Well, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes no? it's a su- surprise. Is it really? It, it, it's not appropriate. You should always tell somebody that you, you want to name them as the trust, as the trustee, and is that okay with them? Right. And then you should also supply them a copy of the trust and say, would you be willing to serve? We need to take a quick break. When we come back, can we touch a couple of minutes on charitable trusts? Sure. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. It's the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQVAM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQVAM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Talking smart money, I'm Beth Bershak with Jim Lang. We are down to our last five minutes. One, uh, we'll, we'll take a quick break and do a, a, a charitable trust for just a couple of minutes, but we are going to make an offer again for the free book, Retire Secure, Pay Taxes Later. We've done this for the past couple of shows, and we do it for the first few people. So I'll tell you about that in just a minute. But the book is awesome. We've had so many great testimonials from people, including Charles Schwab, who wrote A Roadmap for Tax-Efficient Retirement and Estate Planning. That's what Charles Schwab has to say about the book. Jane Bryant Quinn says this book covers two areas particularly well, Roth IRA conversions and estate planning for IRA owners. Larry King did the foreword. Ed Slot did the introduction, and I'll tell you how you can get a free copy in just a minute. But Jim, I didn't want to close out the hour without mentioning charitable trust because a lot of people, this is one of the top things on their mind when they're putting together their estate planning. I, I think that for most people, I'm not sure that a charitable trust is appropriate. Sometimes, again, just like earlier, I prefer just leaving a certain amount of of money or a percentage of your estate, or preferably, I actually like a percentage of the IRA or retirement plan to charity. That's that's sometimes the simplest and most common, and in many cases, the most effective method of charitable giving for people who only want a relatively small amount of their estate um, to go to charity. But if you are interested in a higher amount, then getting into the charitable trusts are pretty interesting. And there's two different basic types of trusts. One is upon your death, um, a family member, whether it be a spouse or a child, um, sometimes a grandchild, usually more so a child or a spouse or some combination thereof, um, will get the income, and there's special ways to define income called a total return trust, but they will get the income from the trust and then when they die, then it goes to the charity of your choice. That way, you're providing an income source for your loved ones, but at their death, it goes to a charity of of your choice. Now, another way to go is you can 
give the income to the charity and the charity gets the income for a certain period of time and then at the end of that period then the money goes back to the family that's Ooh, called a charitable lead that's trust interesting. and actually now because of the low interest rates not necessarily by the banks but actually the, the low government rates now's a very favorable time to do a charitable lead trust but that's that's not going to be the that's not your meat and potatoes estate planning for the average person who has a million dollars and wants to leave five, ten, or even fifty or a hundred thousand dollars to a charity. I'm going to give the office phone number because if you want to talk to Jim about any of these type of trusts that we have talked about tonight, four one two five two one two seven three two. I do want to invite you to our next workshop, which is Saturday, June twentieth, Crown Plaza South. We already have numerous reservations. So I would not wait because when we say space is limited, we mean it. We're in a room where you can only fit so many people. So call one eight hundred seven four eight one five seven one nine thirty to eleven thirty that morning, one to three in the afternoon. We have two sessions, one eight hundred seven four eight one five seven one. And we do want to give away copies of the book, the second edition of Retire Secure, Pay Taxes Later. Many of the things that we talked about tonight, the strategies are in this book. Now the next thing is just how many copies? I think I think six copies. Six. The, the, okay. We, the, 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 the first six callers. The first six. Okay. Uh, right, and that 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 would apply to to each show, both both the live show on Wednesday night and this and the Sunday show. Oh, that's excellent. Okay, so four one two. This is what to do if you want a free copy. You can either email Beth at paytaxeslater.com or call the office. Again, that number was 412-521-2732 and you can leave me a message at extension 219. So we will be, we will be back in two weeks. Also check out our website if you want details on the workshop or the next show. That is retiresecure.com. It's the Lang Money Hour where smart money talks. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour where smart money talks. Portions of the audio that you just heard will be posted online at retiresecure.com. You can also find a list of upcoming events and topics at retiresecure.com. To seek Jim's advice personally or to speak to a member of his dedicated staff at Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, call 412-521-2732. Join us again in two weeks when we talk more smart money.